I'm Nathan Gibbs, and this is Deep and Wide, a podcast about Christian culture and how ancient biblical texts are applied to issues raised in a modern world. In our last episode, we talked about evolution with two scientists who are also Christians. We learned about the physical evidence that supports the idea of life evolving on Earth over billions of years. We heard their perspectives on accepting science while believing God created the origins of our universe and the creative processes that resulted in life as we know it today. For some, this challenges their reading of the creation story in the Bible. The issue of evolution and creation, at least looking like they're incompatible at first glance, has led some to doubt whether there is a God at all, or to do the opposite and doubt what the science says. For others, there's less of a divide or conflict here. Billy Graham was a well-known celebrity evangelist who viewed evolution as a part of the creation story itself. He says, I think that we have misinterpreted the scriptures many times, and we've tried to make the scriptures say things they weren't meant to say. I think that we have made a mistake by thinking the Bible is a scientific book. The Bible is not a book of science. The Bible is a book of redemption. And of course, I accept the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe that God created man. And whether it came by an evolutionary process or at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not, does not change the fact that God did create man. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what man is and man's relationship to God. Head of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis, had this to say, God created beings and allowed them to develop according to the internal laws that he gave to each one, so that they were able to develop and to arrive at their fullness of being. He gave autonomy to the beings of the universe at the same time at which he assured them of his continuous presence, giving being to every reality. And so creation continued for centuries and centuries, millennia and millennia, until it became what we know today. God is not a demiurge or a magician, but the creator who gives being to all things. The Big Bang, which nowadays is posited as the origin of the world, does not contradict the divine act of creating, but rather requires it. The evolution of nature does not contrast with the notion of creation, as evolution presupposes the creation of beings that evolve. Today, we take a closer look at the text of the first chapter of Genesis. What can we learn from the original language and the ancient culture of the time of its writing? It'll talk about birds that fly in the sky, but of course not all birds fly, and they were well aware of that fact. They knew about ostriches, for example. So the text is not trying to give you every single category. It's, it's an impressionist painting. It's giving you the, the broad outlines. So you can see a world that's beautiful and fertile and productive and self-sustaining and uh, fit for, for humans to live in. That's Dr. Mark Hamilton, an Old Testament scholar and author. Some of his books include God's Holy Fire, The Nature and Function of Scripture, and A Theological Introduction to the Old Testament. He's a professor in the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University, where he teaches courses in Old Testament and Biblical Hebrew. We'll hear from him about interpreting the original text of Genesis and how it would have been understood by those reading and hearing it in ancient times. ¶¶ 
Mark, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, people have a lot of different views of creation, and I'm sure you've heard variations on a literal six-day process, uh, 6,000-year-old Earth, to God creating the Big Bang and things evolving up from there. Uh, And maybe the Big Bang and evolution are words or terminology that are fairly recent, but I don't think this is a, a new debate. No, it's not a new debate. It uh, goes back at least 2,000 years in Jewish and Christian circles. So uh, as early as the time of Jesus, you have commentators on Genesis like Philo from Alexandria, who was a very educated man, trained in Greek philosophy and asking questions about whether we should read these texts literally. Uh, Or flash forward a little bit further in Alexandria because Alexandria was kind of the Cambridge, Massachusetts of the Roman Empire, right? Uh, uh, Early Christian thinker like Origen, uh, who wrote commentaries and sermons on Genesis, very devout Christian, uh, was arguing that you can't can't possibly read these texts literally because uh, if you do, you end up with things like the sun appearing on day four and light on days one, two, and three with no source of the light. And so for him... Uh, it made no sense to read these texts. He 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 asked the question quite bluntly: How, how who who has a mind who can think that uh, you can eat a tree and it will literally make you smarter? Uh, and so he he's already asking that kind of question. It's not just a modern question. You know, when we read a text, we always ask, "What is the conversation of which it's a part?" Right. So if you're in the ancient world. When Genesis was written, what is the conversation of which this is a part? It's responding to texts that it knows about but isn't quoting directly, but a text from Egypt, text from Mesopotamia, which did have ideas about how creation happened. Uh, and so those, those views usually involve, not always, there's variety, but usually involve either the, a god creating the world as an act of combat, overcoming some force that threatened the gods themselves, or as an act of sexuality, or of uh, the emission of some bodily fluid. And the text uh, takes great pains to say that creation is neither of those things, that combat and conflict are not built into the deep structure of the universe. Uh, nor is sexuality. Sexuality is an attribute of the creatures. It's important, it's beautiful, but it's not an attribute of the creator. And so there's a kind of, these texts are taking a position in these larger conversations. Yeah, I've heard, uh, I heard someone talk about specifically the Babylonian creation Mm -hmm. mythology and how there are elements of that, that it seems like the Genesis account is kind of converting those things into to say that God, God created, and the sun and the moon didn't create. They're not gods, right? God created them, right? And so this is sort of a different view of of a god. It is a different view. So in Genesis, there's not a population of gods who are somehow uh, trying to contribute or or oppose uh, the creation of the world. It's the the sole act of the one God. 
the text doesn't say, and God didn't fight anybody. <laughs> it simply omits that, that part of the conversation. It's, it's not there. But it, that is an idea that was known in ancient Israel because the book of Isaiah talks about it, uses the imagery, and actually uses it against the Babylonians. The Babylonians believed in this combat story. Marduk overcame Tiamat to create the world. Uh, and Tiamat's a dragon. And so Isaiah talks about the, the, the wriggling dragon and the creeping dragon who are going to overcome who are going to overcome Babylon. So he sort of flipped their theology on its head. Um, but Genesis simply ignores that kind of theology and goes a very different direction. Well, let's look at it. Right. Okay. Let's um, let's look at some of the text here. Um, I've got uh, NRSV here, Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. All right. What what's there already that you can that you can see that's telling me anything about? Um, let's say in this bigger question of. Is this literal or figure, figurative that we're kind of talking about? This is a story about creating big, big pieces or big zones of the universe and then filling them up with things. So the first zone it has to create is heaven and earth. Those are the big categories. And in order to create those zones, then you have to start splitting off other zones and separating things. So the waters don't just overwhelm everything. So you have land and then you have water. Or in um, you have in the water you have certain animals. So you you could almost think of this as a kind of binary tree. You know, it's A or it's B, and if it's A, it's either A B or A C, and and so on like that. If you if you like lining up the world that way, it's it's a there's a kind of there's a classification system that's already being introduced, uh, and that's because these thinkers who produce this text are very much interested in classifying the world. But they don't, they don't classify it the way we do. Uh, they're going to classify the animals, for example, by where they live and how they move around. So that's not a modern scientific way of classifying things because modern scientific ways of classifying things weren't invented until the 1700s, right? Uh, they're much, much later. And so, so it's not that. On the other hand, it is a kind of... Uh, is a classification system that respects observation. I mean, I can tell that there's a difference between a catfish and a bald eagle by where they live and how they get around. So, so it's not a crazy way to think about things, though it is different. The verse 2 is, ask, is, is addressing the question, what does it look like before there is creation? Uh, what does uncreation look like? And the answer is there's no differentiation of space by how it can be inhabited. Uh, there is an earth, but it's, it's covered in water. Uh, and, and then it uses this word tohom, which means the depth or the abyss. Uh, it's, it's actually the Hebrew equivalent of the uh, Akkadian Babylonian word Tiamat. Uh, it's not a monster here. It doesn't have consciousness. It's not a sentient being, uh, but it is a space that is... Uh, that is open, that is frightening, that is uh, inhospitable to life, uh, and is uh, and is un unrestrained at this point. And so, I, I would say you you have 
a, a little trace of the the old older theology, but it's been completely re rethought, reconfigured. Well, we move on, right? We start uh, having days, um, creating light. God said, "Let there be light," um, and then let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Yeah. So all the uh, what's going to happen in the next several days is separation. It's organization. It's uh, God is the ultimate declutterer of things, right? Sort of reorganizing the world so it uh, so darkness and light are separated, and there's the alternation of light and darkness on on the land on the earth. Uh, I, I think what we're seeing here is the creation of kind of the basic structure. Of the cosmos again, we've got to we got to lay out the structure, and then we can fill it with with different things. But we have to, we have to build the house, as it were. That and that 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 metaphor is not gratuitous, because if you if you read the creation story in the book of Job, Job thirty eight, uh, Job is asked by God, uh, you know, were you there when we are found in the world? Of course, obviously the answer is no, but. Were you there when we laid the cornerstone of the earth and the children of God sang for joy? You know, the angels were there to celebrate the building of the world in, in the book of Job. And, and that's, it's different from Genesis's view, but it's not so different. The next line in Job is, uh, talks about how God uh, made sure there was a boundary to the ocean. So the uh, when it burst forth from the womb, very very poetic. It's it's the the ocean is amniotic fluid. Frankly, uh, the ocean is life giving and you know, but but needing limits. So I, I think that it's not the same as Genesis, but it's related. The 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 oceans have to have limits, otherwise there can't be any cows and horses and humans, at least not for very long. Well, that's the next uh, the next step here is we separate the water the dry land. Um, and then, you know, we get into, let's see, this is verse 11. Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with seed in it. Well, again, we're making observations about the way the world is organized. Uh, one, one point I might make is that this text is not, even though it's giving you categories and putting things in boxes, it's not trying to give you all the boxes. Right, because there there are plants that don't bear seeds, and there are plants that don't bear fruit, at least in the way we would recognize normally. Just like it'll talk about birds that fly in the sky, but of course not all birds fly, and they were well aware of that fact. They knew about ostriches, for example. So the text is not trying to give you every single category. It's it's an impressionist painting. It's giving you the the broad outlines. So you can see a world that's beautiful and fertile and productive and self-sustaining and uh, fit for, for humans to live in and other creatures to live in. What do you make, um, as we continue through the list of making creatures, uh, we, get, we get down to verse 26 hmm. where the, the phrasing shifts to let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, et cetera, et cetera. There's a let us, right? There's this collective voice, and then and the image piece I want to get to next, because I think that's another interesting point. Right. Well, who's the us is the question, and why does God suddenly appeal to the us? 
Um, I think the most the most reasonable interpretation, the one that fits the Old Testament best, is that he's talking to what we sometimes call the divine council, right? The the, the group of the court of the heavenly king, or what the later tradition would call the angels. Uh, and so he's saying to the, saying to these this group, which we see in other texts like Job one and Isaiah six and First Kings twenty two, and Zechariah in several places. Uh, this, this, he's saying to this heavenly court, uh, let us in some way be involved in the creation of human beings. Then it goes on and says that God's the one who created them. So whatever role these other, these other beings had is not stated. And that, that in itself, it's hard to know how far to press that because, um, for example, in, in one version, in the, the great Babylonian story, the Enuma Elish, the the being the divine being Kingu the 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 husband of Tiamat is killed, and there are other versions in which some god is killed, and the blood of that god is then mixed with dirt to make humans. Uh, this this text doesn't go down that road. It doesn't give any specific action to the heavenly court, except that they're informed. That, that this sort of thing is going to be happening and they have some sort of connection. The text doesn't explore that. It's, it's one of those um, sort of dead ends in a way in the narrative that you wish it did explore, but it doesn't. It just leaves it hanging. And what do you make of, of the image, right? the image of God? What, what, what can we learn here about that? Well, what does he mean by image? Uh, you know, the word the word in the Bible usually refers to a statue or a figurine or some you know carving that looks like usually a human being, uh, and usually the making of these images is forbidden to humans as long as if they're planning to pray to them. So, in one sense, Genesis is inverting the normal practice in which humans make images of themselves and call them gods. Here God is making images of God's self and calling them humans. Um, what exactly is the nature of that image is, again, something the text doesn't spell out and theologians have been arguing about ever since. What does it mean? Is it uh, our moral sensibility? Is it our ability to create? Is it our ability to sort of reproduce ourselves? Is it our power over other things? I mean, it does go on and talk about ruling over the other creatures. Uh, what is it about us that's godlike? And uh, the text doesn't quite say, but it does have an idea that's it's not spelled out in Genesis one, but it's spelled out at least in part in the Ten Commandments, where uh, Israel is supposed to observe the Sabbath in imitation of the God who who stopped his activity on the seventh day. So there's this sense that humans have the capacity at some level to imitate God. We have to be really careful because we have to remember that we're not God. And so there's some things that we shouldn't be imitating, right? Uh, I shouldn't be flooding people or sending plagues on people or things like that. But, uh, but there are other things I do imitate, can, should imitate. And so uh, there's at least a clue there as to what it might mean. But again, it's not spelled out. 
you got one chapter. You got, what, 34 verses if you kind of drift a little bit into chapter two, something like that. And uh, 30, 30, what, yeah, 30 something verses, 34 mm -hmm. verses. <laughs> so obviously, it's not going to lay out everything. Can't possibly. Uh, it's simply giving us, it's sketching in the things that we need to then wrestle with, which I think is what the Bible does. It, it, it's, it's good at giving some answers, but it's even better at giving important questions and opening avenues for reflection and exploration, sometimes avenues that have to be traversed over centuries by lots and lots of people. And that's, that's something powerful, I think. We go on to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over these creatures. Um, what can you tell us about the subduing and dominion and kind of maybe what that, ref does that reflect something of the, the godliness that we're given in our image or, or what are we talking about? Well, it may very well. That may be part of the clarification of what it means to be in the image of God. So look at the, there's a sequence of four verbs, right? Be fruitful, multiply, well, five verbs. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, uh, subdue, subdue it, it, rule it. Mm -hmm. And... That, that sequence is intentional, I think. So each one is prog prog progressing us toward the final state in which somehow humans are God's viceroys on earth, just like the sun and the moon are God's viceroys in the sky. But what does that mean? What does it mean to subdue it? Um, the next verse tells us, oh, by the way, you can't eat them. Mm -hmm. And so... Subdue certainly doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. And so that already says it's, it's an interesting choice of verbs because it, these are military verbs. Uh, subdue is a military verb. It's always used, in a, it's almost always used in other texts in reference to uh, military conquest. There are a couple of exceptions. Once it's used in Esther to describe an assault on Esther. So that's pretty close, similar meaning. But it's used in Micah to describe God's uh, destruction of our sins, which I think is a wonderful use at the, near the very end of the book of Micah, that he, we, God has subdued our sins and cast them into the depths of the sea. Very beautiful text. But here, uh, the the domination is qualified in some pretty important ways. It also has to be qualified just more generally in how the Bible thinks about uh, thinks about politics, thinks about domination, thinks about rule. If you are in charge of something, if you're the king or a judge or whatever, you have a moral obligation to work for the best interests of the people who are who are being obedient to you. Uh, you never get to just run roughshod over them. And if you act in ways that are unjust or with harshness, as Leviticus puts it, then you should be sure that God is going to be your enemy. So just wait. So the idea, I say all that to say, there isn't any, there isn't any reason to think that this verse means humans are now empowered to do whatever they want. That's a serious misreading of the text, and it has, it has very destructive consequences. It's not just bad in Hebrew or bad theology or bad exegesis of the text. It's, 
it's morally bad, right? So I think we should try to be careful about how we how we read this text. Mm-hmm. So they were vegetarians. In in Genesis, they're vegetarians at the beginning until the end of the flood, in which then they're allowed to eat animals. It's a uh, it's a very strange thing because in ancient times uh, we don't know a lot about vegetarians. Uh, some Greek philosophers were vegetarians, right? Pythagoreans as a group were vegetarians, but it's it's and then there were later religious traditions like the Manichees were vegetarians, but it's it's fairly rare. And this would probably be among our oldest examples of vegetarians. So we come back around to this thought of, you know, the the bigger picture in the series. We're thinking about evolution and kind of how we came to be. You know, some people would, you know, talk about um, God creating fossils, but not having created dinosaurs, right? Or did God create the dinosaurs then that lived for millions of years and they died and became fossils over millions of years and that sort of a, a thought. Uh, I, I heard growing up, you know, the, this attempt to square this through the use of um, a, a day is like a thousand years uh, to God. And so these six days could be more than six days, six, mm-hmm. seven days. Is there anything that we kind of see here in this that gives us a hint in, in any direction that we're intended to read this in a certain way? Well, I think there are two or, three, two or three things. I'll try to take those apart. First of all, it seems really problematic to say that God, cre- God created things so that the universe is not actually the way it looks, right? I mean, what we're saying is that God is, is a trickster, which is pretty close to saying God is a liar, uh, which I think creates some pretty serious theological problems that the only people who know about the true nature of God are those who know that God is a liar. It strikes me as very problematic from a Christian point of view. In other words, problematic is academic speak for wrong. Uh, <laughs> it means that can't, that can't possibly be a logical answer. It, it creates much more serious problems than it solves. So I think we, that doesn't mean that every scientific conclusion is right because they're subject to change as evidence piles up. You know, that, that's not the point. The point is it doesn't seem likely that the world is simply not the way it seems to be uh, and that somehow we've been deluded into believing it. There's no reason to believe that. That's simply a, an attempt to find an easy way out of things. So that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, how am I supposed to read this text? I, I don't. I don't think that this text is a scientific text. It's not trying to do that. Um, not only because it would be pretty hard to do that in ancient times; it would be more or less unintelligible to people. But but because of the things it does emphasize. Uh, it's it's talking about the goodness of the world and the goodness of God and the fertility of things. And so it uh, those are the things we ought to concentrate on. Uh, now about the days and the years, I, I don't – I'm not sure I think Genesis – when Genesis wrote day, it was thinking about, you know, eons. I don't think you can easily map up – map things onto this, you know. Day one is the – Hadean epoch or, you know, 
day two is the Precambrian epoch, whatever. Mm-hmm, I, I, right. I, I, I just don't think you can do that. Uh, I don't. I don't think that works very well. I don't think that's the intention of these texts at all. Um, because the days are about the alternation. It, it keeps talking about the alternation of day and of darkness and light. So I don't. I don't think it makes sense to say we have one alternation of darkness and light over five hundred million years. I mean that doesn't that doesn't make doesn't work. Uh, I think it's more a, a dramatic statement about the creation of the world. The, the The climax of this story is the day seven event or non-event in which God rests and, and, and therefore creates the space for humans to rest. That's a strike against the idea in the, the Babylonian theology in which humans exist in order to do the work the gods don't want to do, the dirty work. <clears throat> and in this way of thinking about the world, in Genesis, humans rest because God rests. And when they're not resting, they're spending their time uh, thinking about reproduction, right? So it's, it's, it's a very much more humane and very different way of thinking about things. That's not to say that, you know, everybody in, in the Babylonian world is trying to oppress people or anything. That's not the point. All it is is, is these are lines and text, but, but there, is a, there is a real contrast there. I guess my point is um, I don't think that we have to reconcile Genesis with science at that level. I think you ask yourself, what do they have in common? Uh, They think the world is somewhat orderly, at least at a high enough level of resolution. Uh, They think that reproduction is a good thing. Uh, they think that uh, animals and plants and so on relate to each other in intimate ways. Um, and they think that humans have the ability to reflect on all these things. So at that level, then there's not really a tension. But if, if we realize these are different kinds of conversations, they're apples and oranges, you don't feel a strong need to reconcile apples and oranges, right? Uh, the book is not, uh, Genesis 1 is not a poem, technically speaking, but it's close to a poem. And it, it really does have a kind of poetic sensibility. I don't, I don't see why, you know, we don't usually put poems in biology textbooks or physics textbooks, uh, or, or, nor do we put mathematical formulas in literature textbooks usually. We, we're perfectly comfortable with the idea that these are two different kinds of things, and and that's not a problem. So um, I think that's that's probably a better approach than than some things that we might think about. So God is in control. He's separating spaces, separating things from each other: the water from the land, and the light from the dark. Um, the skies, you know, the waters above and below, and the animals to different places above and below, and and uh, orderly, right? So we get this orderly picture, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. And then uh, the image of God, we've created man, and there's no gender there. I also think that's kind of an interesting distinction. Right. I mean, well, the, the image of God is not gendered, right? 
Yeah, he says he made he makes them in the image of God, male and female. He makes them. Uh, so God, see, even I'm betraying myself because I'm saying God with a masculine pronoun, which I habitually do because I'm male. But you know, the, the God of the Bible doesn't have gender in the same way that I do or you do, uh, and can't because God is God and we're creatures. Creatures have sexuality and gender, and God doesn't. So the text wants to say that humanity is all in the image of God. I, I would say, in a, I, w- I, would, I think I would argue that actually Genesis 1 on that point is a corrective of a possible misunderstanding of Genesis 2 and 3. Because in Genesis 2 and 3, we get the woman made second and we get this curse after they, they talk to snakes and believe them, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and and then hierarchy is introduced, and the woman is subordinated as a as a result of all of that. But that's not Genesis one. Genesis one wants to remind the reader that even whatever whatever you think about Genesis two and three, that's not in the deep structure of the creation. It's a result of what the later tradition would call the fall. It's a it's a sign of of the brokenness. Uh, not a sign of the original intention, and uh, that I think we need to we need to reflect on because we haven't been very good at at get it, keeping that straight. I think. And we come to the end, right, with the seventh day, and you you made reference again to the the Ten Commandments, and you know this um, Sabbath, this need for this this day of rest. Um, what else can we take away from that? That that God God doesn't God clearly is is, is all powerful. He doesn't get tired, right? He, he's not right. He's not resting out of a desire to take a break. Um, right. It's, he's he's setting some sort of example, right? It seems different. Right. No, I think that's right. You've already, you've answered the question. I think yes, I think that's right. I mean, God is not tired. All he's done is talk, right? So he's not God is <laughs> God is not tired. But it's a model for humans. I, I think part of the part of the Part of the reason it's there too is this: uh, if you if you think about the year, the year is is the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. The month is the movement of the Moon around the Earth, and you know humans have been trying to synchronize those because they don't fit exactly, uh, and so we've been working on calendars to make that work, and we've been working on that for five thousand years. Uh, but basically, a month is the movement of the moon around the earth and the and a year is the movement of the earth around the sun and that's observable and it's built into the structure of the the planet, whereas Sabbath is not. There's no natural cycle that's seven days long. Uh, and that's part of the point. The, 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 uh, the seven-day cycle is a kind of special creation of, of the deity. And it reflects God's own uh, action and inaction in the creation story. And so humans have access in that to something that's not dependent on the, the creatures, the sun and the moon. It's, it's independent of those things. So I think there's a lot there to reflect on. Well, Mark, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
Dr. Mark Hamilton is an Old Testament scholar and professor in the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University, where he teaches courses in Old Testament and Biblical Hebrew. Next time on Deep and Wide, a controversy breaks out in the 80s at a Christian university over the teaching of evolution. An inside look at what happened and what we can learn from it today. Deep and Wide is produced in association with the Conversations class at University Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas, and distributed by public radio station KACU. I'm Nathan Gibbs, and this is Deep and Wide. <laughs>